chop, chop, pudding head. I'm just kidding. <laughs> totally kidding. You guys are amazing. Can we give them a hand? Yeah. It would be probably good if I could have, just because I'm a little lightheaded, if I keep going down and up, I might pass out. That might not be good. I just a little. You're amazing. Thank you so much. Did you have a good lunch? Wow, we've just so, so loved our time with you, and I'm excited about this message I'm about to share. And I'm going to wake up in the middle of the night because I am a guilt magnet, feeling bad for teasing him. So everybody hug him before you leave, even if he's not a hugger. That's just good. So this message in the book, Your Sacred Yes, has been about 15 years in the making for us. <clears throat> if some of you know the story, and I'm, I don't have time to get into it today, but in our early years of marriage, we literally, when we got married, we were married young 20s, we we're going to wait five years to have children, and we got pregnant on our honeymoon. <laughs> and I told people, I don't know how this happened. And Kev's like, I'll tell you how it happened as if it was all up to him, and it wasn't. But anyway, during the pregnancy, found out I had endometriosis, and the doctors said, thank you, sir. Let's give him a hand. Good sport. You're not a pudding head. <laughs> um, so we got pregnant, found out during the pregnancy I had endometriosis, and the doctor said, you will have a hysterectomy in your 20s. So if you want more kids, have them now. So that, we had them right away, and then I had a hysterectomy in my 20s. And as I mentioned last night, during my third pregnancy, I was on bed rest for six months with high-risk pregnancy. Got up one day to meet some friends from college and walked along a path in a little town called Stillwater. And that was the day, apparently, that the deer tick got me that I didn't know about. Within two weeks of that, because I was back on bed rest that night, my face started to go numb and neurological things started to happen. But I kept thinking, I'm just stressed. We're going broke. I got three more months on bed rest to hold this baby in. And we delivered little Jordan, and he had respiratory issues. He got better. I got worse. And our first seven years of life were marked by unrelenting crisis. When it seemed like things were getting better for me, <laughs> excuse me, <laughs> and uh, it seemed like we were going to not be on five prayer chains anymore, I was thrilled. And that's an accomplishment. When you don't have five churches <laughs> going, we're praying for you, man. I mean, I was just so desperately wanting not to be that family anymore, not to be the one who was always in crisis. Um, things seemed like they were getting better for us. And... Uh, my hubby sent out the Christmas letter saying the winds of change seem to be blowing and we're so grateful for your friendship and prayers. And that Christmas we found a lump on my husband and he was diagnosed with cancer within a few weeks of that. So in our 20s, I was sick. In our early 30s, he battled cancer with radiation and major surgery. So you can imagine for us, um, because we're both drivers, uh, strivers, task-oriented people, um, we thank God for those things because I don't know if you've ever heard the analogy of a shepherd when he's leading his sheep. If there's one that wanders, they'll sometimes break the legs of the sheep and carry the little one around its neck because it's, that one will wander to its own detriment. But that ends up being the closest one to the shepherd because that little sheep just hangs over around the neck of the shepherd and pretty soon their hearts start to beat in rhythm together and that sheep gets very attached to the shepherd. That has just been, that's the story of my life, you know, um, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Striving and wandering can be into the ditch of sin, but it can also be into the ditch of our own efforts. That's where I would have gone. That's where I would go. 
just striving in my own strength. When the Bible says, see striving and know that he is God, striving is all about straining, bootstrap theology, um, soul unrest, as if more is on our shoulders than on his. But to see striving and know that he is God, the word know is translated into utmost intimacy. If you, if you do look at the Greek translation or the Hebrew translation, it's actually more intimate than man and woman having intercourse. It's spiritual intimacy like nothing is in between. And so if you look at these areas of your life where there's soul unrest and striving, God is like, not, he's not wanting to pound you on the head. He's not saying ought to, should do, get it together. He's saying, know me here. In this place of unrest of your finances or your marriage or your weight or your identity or your kids or the future or ISIS or this political race, know me here. Stop the soul unrest and find a secret place in me. That is what I learned in that place where I am a, a goer, but there's this thorn, this whatever, this thing that I've had to deal with has been a gift from God because it's kept me so dependent. Well, my husband is far more capable than I am in his efforts and, and far more of a striver, and he would tell you that himself. And uh, he became a workaholic before he was diagnosed with cancer. Once he came through that, I love the man I married. Um, I cherish the man after cancer, that he's a better man. He was a great man. He's a better man now. And we were just talking this morning about, you know, People think oftentimes when we go on these events that he's supporting my ministry. And, uh, and I almost without fail, these guys are stellar, but almost, these guys, he always, he's like, I love these guys. They're just so class act. But at a lot of other places, almost without fail, one of the guys behind the scenes will say something like, why don't you go get a real job instead of working for your wife? Aha, uh -huh, funny, funny, you know? And I'm like, boom, you know? But what I said before is he's a construction manager, so when that man walks on a large-scale job site, 150 men with hard hats stand up a little bit straighter. He commands a lot of respect. And this isn't my dream and my ministry that he's propping me up. Maybe it started out that way in our 20s and 30s. I'm too old for that. I'd rather stay home and snuggle with my pit bull. I just would. Uh, traveling is hard on me, but what we have really come to see marriage as is like, you remember those old revival evangelistic tent meetings in the olden days? We see marriage that way. We want to create a space where as many people can encounter the kingdom as possible. And there's times I'm holding a tent stake and he's up front. Other times he's holding a tent stake and I'm up front. We're doing work in Rwanda that's just awesome, but he's the one who goes because I just can't with my help. We're engaged in our church's building campaign financially and physically, but he's the one who sits on the committee. But when he, what he does, I do. When he says yes, I say yes. Do you notice that in your families, Right? And we're in this together in these capacities because of the kind of girl that he married, broken, afraid, insecure, afraid of my shadow. And he has seen what happens when one woman takes God at his word. And so we're equally mutually passionate about seeing you take God at his word. So this isn't my ministry. Honestly, in my 20s, early 30s, maybe I had a, not to say we don't have dreams in our hearts, but it's so not about that. It seriously just is not. It is about may his kingdom come and his will be done. And so he does put up with the bantering a lot. And sometimes it's a little bit of a barb, you know what I mean? And I think it kind of like bums him out because it's such a disrespectful thing to say. So just if you would indulge me and give my honey a hand, that would be just amazing. So, but. Thank you. That's enough. It'll go to his head. That's enough. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. 
he's so confident that I think he doesn't remember half the stuff he does. That's why he's, no, I'm kidding, never mind. I just gotta say this one little thing. He was giving up sweets and he literally was holding two wrappers of ice cream sandwiches in his hands, dead serious, true story. I haven't had sweets in like a week. I'm like, you have wrappers in your hands. I go, this is why you feel so good about yourself. You don't remember half the stuff you even do. <laughs> I love you, honey. It's solid, steady Eddie. I need him. Anyway, we came through the 20s and 30s, and so mid to 30s on, we were so passionate about getting involved in life and church and making it count. So having two very strong-willed people go down like we went down, we rose back up saying we are going to squeeze every drop out of life. We are going to make it count. So we signed up for things at church that God asked us to do and everything else he didn't ask us to do. I am telling you what, we committed and committed and committed and it's not sustainable, I'm here to tell you. We just about exhausted ourselves. And at that point, <laughs> and if some of you read the Yes book, you've read the story in the first chapter. We were exhausted. This was not good for our marriage. We were running parallel paths and connecting less and less, doing lots of churchy, religious, great things. It was bearing some fruit, but it was killing us. And a woman asked me out to breakfast, a very distinguished woman. And she said, Susie, uh, I've asked you out to breakfast to actually talk with you. Um, I'm watching you. And she said, my husband and I at our previous church held leadership roles like you do. We were committed to a lot like you are. We were apparently bearing some fruit in our ministry like you are. But she said, we ran ourselves into the ground. In one unrealized moment of vulnerability, she said, my husband made a moral choice that has devastated us in a very public way. And our lives came crashing down. And we are still sorting through the wreckage of that mess. And she said, I'm watching you. <coughs> Excuse me. She said, I see the fatigue in your eyes. I see how you two are running. I'm quite sure you have no intention of stepping out on Kevin or on the best of what God has. I'm quite sure Kev has no plans to step out on you, but we have a fierce enemy, and he's waiting. And she said, this is not sustainable. She said, fear God, pull back, and put some firmer boundaries around your life. That was a wake-up call, and God used a number of things after that to give us the wake-up call we needed, and we pulled back. And this was, I honestly felt like, my feelings of love in my marriage were almost bankrupt because we were exhausted and we weren't tending to each other. And he's able to run much harder and faster than me. That's where the book Alone in Marriage came out of. And uh, in that place, we started to interview each other. Like, what are the non-negotiables? What do we need to put back in place to rebuild? And we started to, and every, for you and for me, that's going to look different. Again, health-wise, I needed a good bedtime. I think everybody does. I think you need a consistent bedtime. Just... I think sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap. Our bodies need to rest. Uh, but so we put some firm boundaries around our life, and we decided these things are non-negotiable so that we can build our marriage, but we can also, that we can last long and finish strong. But the tricky thing for me, being in fitness, I very much understand the power of discipline. Discipline is like the art of steady application. And if you look at anybody in your world who's got some momentum in their lives, it's because they do it when they feel like it, they do it when they don't. Whether it's practicing the, the, the musical instrument, it's the craft of writing, a sport, even in their marriage. If there is momentum, it's because every single day they show up and they show up. And it's absolutely powerful to watch someone with momentum in their lives. And the same is true in our physical bodies. When you apply fitness and you discipline and you say no to your flesh so you can say yes to your health, 
you will get a momentum. But what troubled me in fitness all those years is because I understand discipline, I'm wired that way, is in the fitness industry, it's full of selfish people. It just is because we get so wrapped up in our disciplines that things get in the way like people. So it's almost like, I know you're hemorrhaging, but oh, my step class starts in like 10 minutes, so put pressure and I'll, I'm sure someone will find you. And that's an exaggeration, but it is actually true. You know, if you are a disciplined person or you know that someone, it becomes very much about my comforts, my stuff, my rhythm, my schedule. Do you know what I'm saying? You resonating? Okay. So this is where the rub was for me because I'm like, well, what about laying my life down, God? What about sacrifice? I mean, I know I'm dying and I can't keep up this, but how does that jive with my limits? And that's when the Lord whispered in my heart, I've been waiting for you to ask me this. When you start to embrace your limits because your limits are a gift and you ask me to show up in the, con in the context of those limits, you're going to see that I have no limits. You ask me to do the impossible through you, I will. And that became the game changer because I thought, if, do I have to just live by my limits and so that means my world's going to be small because I need to go to bed on time? It was such a depressing thought. But when he whispered that and I found it in scripture, my hubby and I became a force to reckon with. So about 15 years ago, and we do it every morning and every night, we get hands together and we, we obey and respect our limits. We just have non-negotiables. And I'm telling you what, we're like in this place, so Lord, Ask us to do the impossible. Do the impossible in and through us. What audacious cause can we give to sacrificially in a way that we feel that you have to show up? What audacious thing do you want us to ask you for? And this, to me, is the difference between the busyness that drains and the abundance that trains. The busyness that drains is when we sign up for things God never asked us to do, and it runs us right into the ground. Jesus is never going to grind our gears to the point of breakdown. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. We are the ones who do that to ourselves. That busyness that drains, how do you know if you're in that phase? Well, ask yourself, in the midst of this rat race culture that I'm in, are my decisions inspiring more faith, more wonder that God is who he says he is, more awe that his promises are true? Or do you just think, I got to get through today. If I can get through this weekend, if I can get through this month, if that's where your brain goes, you might be in the busyness that drains. But the abundance that trains, I do make a lot of parallels with fitness because I understand the human body as much as possible and there's such a correlation. In fitness, let's say you've never worked out a day in your life, but you think, I'm going to start caring for my health. And you walk into a health club and you see this muscle head guy and he's like, and he's doing a big squat of all these big weights. And you're like, oh, so that's what you do to get healthy. So you have someone set you up and you, you, you collapse and you rip every tendon in your body and you're in traction. And you're like, well, that didn't work so well. But we do that to ourselves in the, in the natural realm with our commitments. We put stuff on our frame that we're not ready to carry. So the abundance that trains, is, if you remember, God is an invested heavenly father. So as you start to embrace and respect your limits, and then you say, do the impossible. Give me an audacious vision that's beyond me, disproportionate to who I am. He's like, this is where I'm going to take you. He may give you a vision and a sense of it, but this is your next right step. And he'll put just enough weight on you that's a little heavier than you can carry. And what often happens for us is all of a sudden we're like, oh, okay, we feel this. What has to go? And we'll cut this out. You trim this fat off over here, and we readjust how we carry it. And there's a, a fatigue in it a little bit, a muscle fatigue. And it's a little more than we're used to. 
but eventually we gird up under it and it, we have a new threshold and a new normal. That's what happens in fitness. If you decide to run, you run a little bit further, a little bit faster, you lift a little bit more. If you do it the right way, you ask your body nicely, your body breaks down and heals and you have a new threshold and a new normal. This is what God does. I see it again and again. And you get to a new normal and you hit that stride and you go, okay, let's go again. And this is how we've done it for 15 years. What's the next thing? What's the next impossible thing? And then he adds the weight and it's the abundance that trains and it's the abiding life. Really, it's all about the abiding life, but stewarding the abiding life. It's the difference between someone who started with nothing and managed a business till they made their millions, a kingdom person who gives all kinds of money away, but still manages to love their spouse, love their kids, stay humble and gracious and manage them much. Do you know anybody like that? They didn't get there overnight. They got there from one right choice at a time. That's the difference between that person and the person who wins a lottery ticket. They win millions and it puts a bomb in the middle of their life and blows their life up because they're not conditioned to manage it. Does that make sense? But if you meet any woman or man who lives the abiding life and you look at their life and you're like, no way did they do this on their own. There has to be a God in heaven. If you were to scoot a little closer and say, how do you do this? I guarantee you they would tell you, I couldn't carry this five years ago or 10 years ago, but it's doing the next thing that God gives me to do. And at the sacred yes is really all about being interruptible, being directable, where you abide in him. And he says yes to this, no to this. My mentor always says, Susie, if it's not a capital yes, it's a no. That was huge for me. Because I'm like, little yes, I got the Y-E. Okay, let's do it, you know? But capital yes has served us so well. Because every time you say yes, you say no. Every time. You got this one life. None of us know about tomorrow. So we're, we're called, we are heirs of God. So the sloppy yes is beneath us. The shackled yes is beneath us. We're free. Picture that amazing table you saw earlier. We're only called to the sacred yes. So I'm going to spend the rest of this time digging even a little bit deeper on what fuels our yeses because I feel like we lose perspective in the three areas I'm about to talk with you about. This is what, where we lose track. This is where we lose our way. I want to talk with you about eternity, freedom, and redemption because when we lose sight of eternity, we start to live in the earthly realm. And, I, and God really has put eternity in our hearts. Eternity is tangible. Freedom is attainable. And redemption is possible. Eternity is tangible. It's, we can touch it. Freedom is attainable. Redemption is possible. If we don't think eternity is tangible, our, we're going to make it a habit of taking shortcuts, of numbing our pain, of having a get-through-the-moment mindset. And I believe there's going to be a day in heaven where we meet Jesus and see storehouses untapped because we didn't access them, because we didn't live by faith, because we were making a habit of shortcuts in our life. Eternity is tangible. Freedom is attainable. Redemption is possible. Psalm 90.12 says, Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. To number our days is to appoint the day, it's to anoint the day, it's to claim the day. And to the extent that you anoint and appoint the day, in other words, to the extent that you see today is a day, it's a gift to steward, to treasure, to lay hold of his promises, to be empowered by his grace, to the extent that you do that, will you have a heart of wisdom? So the unwise woman races through her day thinking she has a thousand more tomorrow. None of us know about tomorrow, but we have today. When I got a hold of that verse, I changed even how I wake up in the morning. I wake up and go right to the floor 
put my knees on the ground, my face on the ground, and I say, I anoint the day. In fact, I, I say an old worship song from the 80s, I think it was. I bow my knees before your throne. I know my life is not my own. I offer up myself to you to bring you pleasure, Lord. I seek the giver, not the gift. My heart's desire is to lift you high above all earthly things, bring you pleasure, Lord. I just love that. That's sort of my morning prayer. And it's a routine, but it hasn't become routine for me, where I just know today's a gift. I have my plans, but will you determine my steps, Lord? Work through me. Help me to expect the impossible. Help me not to miss anybody. Teach us to number our days. May we be wise enough to keep eternity in mind, gritty enough to fight for the freedom that God offers, and faithful enough to believe that Jesus will redeem our story. Jesus, I just ask you to speak through me. Speak through me, God. And I pray that our capacity to know your love would grow exponentially, that our life would be one of response after response, responding to your love and not reacting to the world. In Jesus' name, amen. John 15, 5 says, I am the vine. This is Jesus. I am the vine. You are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus also says, it's to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. He says, I've appointed you to bear fruit that lasts. It's to his glory. He's got you a, a divine appointment to bear fruit that outlives you. So your fruit bears fruit, bears fruit. Jesus gives a parable in the scripture of the soils. And it's so interesting to me. The four soils in the gospels, Matthew 13, if you want to read on it later. But he talks about the hardened path. And the seed is the word of God, the living word of God. It falls on the hardened path and nothing happens because it's not a guarded life. I call this the unguarded life because the birds snatch it up before the heart even has an opportunity to realize its value. I think that path gets hard from unforgiveness, from bitterness, from busyness, from a disregard, again, of God's promises and his presence. A hardened path is so packed down that when the word does land, the birds snatch it. Enemy snatches it away before you even know what you've lost. The next soil is the shallow soil. I call that the immature life. There's a turned over top soil part. It's a little soft. You have tenderness for the things of God. But underneath, there's a lot of plowing that needs to happen. The, the seed goes in. The plant sprouts because you're excited. Yeah, this is true. I believe this. And then the storm comes. And you're like, I didn't sign up for this. And that storm uproots that plant because there's not maturity. Now, that's okay if you're a brand new believer because there'll be lots of other chances for you to grow in maturity. Not okay if you've been a believer for 30 and 40 years and you continually, repeatedly get offended with God. There is a time where we need to grow up in the things of God and the storms show what we're made of. And in that place, it's a time to let the plow go a little deeper because the soil, to the extent of our sto healthy soil, will show the extent of the fruit in our life. The third one is the distracted life. It's the thorns and the thickets. It's a person who goes, yeah, Christianity is part of my life, but so is my pursuit of wealth and my worries about how I'm going to manage all this wealth. Do you know what I'm saying? Worries about wealth, worries about tomorrow, lots of pursuit of earthly things, and Christianity is a part of it. So the plant might spring up, but the wealth and the worries around the world choke it all out. The fourth soil is the cultivated life, and that's the deep soil. That's an atmosphere of growth. This is a woman who guards her yard, where she says, the most important thing about me is that I belong to him. And the word of God is living and active, and when it gets in me, it produces as much as 100 times 
what was planted. So whatever gets planted in you today, if you have that kind of soil, I want you to imagine a hundred times fruit coming out of your life because you heard, as Jesus said, you decided, I'm going to take this to, the, to my inner place with God. I'm going to understand this, and it's going to produce something in you that others are going to look at you and go, wow, there has to be a God in heaven because she could not produce that kind of fruit. That's what I want. A cultivated life is a woman who pulls the weeds, right? And when the soil, when you bump into some rocks, I feel like those are the unhealed places, and God sets the plow, you say, have your way, and you let him do his work. I meant to bring an apple up. Let's just pretend I got an apple in my hand. In one apple, there's the potential for millions more apples. One apple, there's enough seeds for several trees. Each tree produces 100 more apples in one apple. There's information in the seed. When the seed goes into the ground, it produces. And this is God's intent. He's after multiplication. He's the God of multiplication. I grew up in a family of seven kids. I was number five of seven. And we grew up in a little city, a little suburb. I was there till we were, I was four. And then my dad and my mom, the family moved to the next suburb called New Hope. And my dad was the mayor in that suburb for 27 years. The, the, so the previous suburb where I lived, um, there was this man, being the fifth of seven, I, you know, it's like you, anyway, love, great family, but there's times where I felt a little lost in the shuffle, and there, I was playing in the yard one day, and this man across the street was working on his car, and he had the kind of smile that went all the way up to his eyes, just the sweetest, dearest thing, and he made the probably big mistake of smiling at me, because I'm like, so I stood in my yard and just watched him in his garage, and he'd kind of look up and wave to me. I'd go in the bathroom, have lunch, come back out stare at Bob. And uh, then I got gutsy and crossed the street. And then I remember standing in his garage as a four-year-old. He's under the car. What a loser, really. I mean, seriously, get a life, girl. But I just watched him. And he'd roll out. Oh, oh. I'm like, hi. He's like, hey, I'm Bob. I'm like, I'm Susie, you know. And my first thing I said to him after that was, got any food? And he was so kind that he took me in his house and gave me food, and we sat at the table and got to know him and stuff, and he became my best friend, Bob. Invited him to my birthday party. <laughs> Loved the man. And the thing is so funny is I'd be sitting having cookies and milk at the din dining room table, and his wife would have the nerve to come in and interrupt our time. <laughs> I just remember, like, really? Because... We're having some time here. <laughs> she was, I'm mar I just can't believe I was like that. Well, I can, but still, I can't believe I did that. Oh, and she'd be so sweet. Oh, I'll give you time. I'm like, thank you. Well, I remember one time sitting in the dining room, and it's like a throne, a little armrest. We're talking, and she comes in, and I said, can you go make us some sandwiches? <laughs> I know. I know. And she did. I know. And so she comes back sweetly and backs out of the room, and I have my time with Bob. And, well, we moved, and then every time I was old enough, I mean, when I was old enough, every time I got the chance, I'd ride my bike back to Crystal and see Bob and visit him, and he's the sweetest man. Well, jump ahead. I'm a young mom, wife. I think it might be my dad's last mayoral breakfast, and it was at Crystal Evangelical Free Church in <laughs> New Hope. And uh, the breakfast was over, and my purse strap was hooked to the leg of the chair. Now, any normal, intelligent woman would have just, you know, lifted the chair, got the strap. I, I have to make everything hard. I'm like, and I'm 
pulling on my purse, trying to just free it from the leg of the chair. I, I don't know why, but I just had to do it that way. And the strap broke, and my arm went back, and I elbowed an old man in the belly and almost took him out. I mean, <gasps> I mean like knocked the wind out of him. I'm like, oh, sorry, 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 sorry. I feel like I'm always saying, sorry, sorry, sorry. And uh, he's like, when he got his breath back, he's like, Susie? And I'm like, oh, do I know you? And he said, I'm Bob. And I'm like, Bob. Oh my God. And I hugged him. And he said, the wife and I have been praying for you all these years. I said, you're a Christian? He says, yep, we've prayed for you since the first time we met you. I'm like, your wife too? <laughs> wow. I couldn't believe it. Bob had been praying for me all these years. What I learned later is on the other block, there was a very evil, wicked man that was doing terrible things to children. And I was drawn to Bob. Now, here's the amazing thing. If one of you in this room takes some of what God gave you this weekend and you take it to the bank, where you take it and go, I'm going to hear as Jesus says, I'm going to understand, because that's what he's talking about in the parable of the soils. Blessed are you who hear and understand, which means you own it for yourself and you take it in and go, what does this mean for me? What does obedience look like for me? What impossible thing, God, do you want to do through me? If you do that, your fruit is Bob's fruit. Is that amazing? Because he says, I've appointed you to bear fruit that lasts. And when you're gone, if you're abiding, living the abiding life, there's going to be a ministry that someone's going to go, where did this first start? Oh, Julie did that. She had a heart for children. Or Joanne started that. She had a heart for prostitutes, wanted to minister to them. Can you imagine making such a mark on this earth that your fruit is bearing fruit, is bearing fruit? If we live with eternity in mind, we will give totally different, we'll live totally different. If you imagine when you write that check out to the missionary or to whatever it is God's inviting you to and you understand that he has a bigger shovel than you, you well, he will not be outdone. Anything you give, any seed you plant, any way that you live in faith because you have eternity in mind, there's a quantified result in heaven. You'll see some of it in, on this earth, but you'll see it quantified in heaven. And there will be a line of people waiting to talk with you because they were benefactors of your fruit. Don't you want that? I mean, isn't it any wonder that enemy baits us into a busyness that drains us? He wants us null and void and impotent because he knows if we get a handle on who we are and whose we are and how true these promises are, we will be dangerous. And that's what we're called to. Amen? Even if you're in the, in the shaking of your life, you will bear fruit there. Psalm 126, 5 and 6 says, Those who plant in tears will reap with shouts of joy. They weep as they plant their seed, but they sing as they return with the harvest. In other words, you weep. Your life's falling apart. But you say, even in this place, I will find my God in this somehow. And you put your seed in the ground. And you say, God is who he says he is. I'm watering this with my tears. The Bible says, you will come back with a harvest. Where you had emptiness and heartache and disappointment, you will come back belly laughing, shouting with an armful. And I'm here to tell you, even with what we've walked through, we are belly laughing we are joyful. God is, is who he says he is. Life on earth is short. Eternity is long. We are living for the long haul. We are just more firm in who God says. And here's the amazing thing about the abiding life. We, as God's people, live in the tension of blessing and justice. In other words, he's the one who invented lemonade stands, belly laughing and cliff jumping. He's hilarious. We didn't invent humor and joy. He did. 
I think he thinks I'm kind of funny. I'm pretty sure. I think he laughs at me. Pretty sure. So when you're around the table with your loved ones, when you're holding your belly and laughing at a funny thing or enjoying your children, it's an offering. It's part of the abiding life. But so is human trafficking and poverty and injustice. And some will go into that justice place and forget the part of freedom and abundance. We live in the tension. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That's what the Bible says. Eat your food and go, ah, thank you. I know not everybody in this world gets to have a meal like this. I'm going to be a grateful person. But then be, rise up and be a force to reckon with. And Johnny Erickson taught on my show recently, well, a few months ago. And she talked about when she'd had the diving accident, broke her neck, when she was in the hospital, there was so much structure, she didn't have time to think. But then she was moved to her sister's farm and sat in that chair and thought about her life and one day blurred to the next and she was utterly depressed and just felt so forsaken. And a friend gave her this verse, 2 Peter 3, 8. A day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. And she says, you know, we've all heard that a day is like a thousand years. But to think a thousand years is like a day. She said the Lord dropped eternity in her heart in a way she never thought of before. If a thousand years is like a day, even though the days blur, she said, I can produce a thousand years worth of fruit in one day. She said it was this massive paradigm shift. If I can produce a thousand years worth of fruit in a day, I want you to think about how would you live differently? I just think when we're going to see the multiplication factor in heaven, there'll be the briefest moment where we're like, I want to do over. I want to do this again. I don't want that for any of us. I want to say, no way. His promises are true. And when I, when I move on faith, he takes note of it and he multiplies it. And we sometimes think of faith as these big heroic things. And it's sometimes that. But faith is smiling at your husband after he's totally irritated you. Faith is loving your kids when you want to ask him to put a sock in it. You know what I mean? We have our days and our moments where our self-life wants to show, but we die that we live. God writes it down, and he multiplies it. And women, we got to get out of the beauty contest. We just do. I mean, you, there are gorgeous, gorgeous women who've lived and died. They spent their whole life on their exterior, and we've forgotten about them. Like three of my greatest faith heroes are Harriet Tubman, Corey Timboom, Catherine Booth. Nothing to look at by the world standard, but we're still talking about that. It doesn't take perfect thighs to put a mountain under your feet. It takes the faith of a mustard seed. I say, do what you can with what you got and get on with it, and then focus on the inner life. Another way I say that is paint the barn, get on with the day. Do what you can, and then focus on greater is he who is in me than he who's in the world. Amen? I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of Romans 12, 1 and 2. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life. Do you hear how inclusive this is? And place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Hear that again. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. 
readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings out the best of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. So we've talked eternity. We're going to talk for a moment about freedom. Here's a clip from my Your Sacred Yes DVD. This was a struggle for me. You might not relate to this struggle. I think a lot of you will. But the idea is when we start to live the abiding life, we are going to buck up against some of the lies we believe. We can either look at it as an obligation or an invitation because God's always inviting us to new levels of freedom. Let's watch. It doesn't take us very long to learn the rules. Just fit in. Don't rock the boat. When you're in, you're in. And when you're out, you're most definitely out. It doesn't take us very long to feel the sting of rejection, to feel the crushing power of others' opinions. And so, it doesn't take us very long to learn to work the system, to play the game, to hide who we really are, to become what everybody else wants us to be to do what everybody else wants us to do. And somewhere along the way, we lose the person God intended us to be. We find ourselves bound by the chains of approval, burdened by fear of being left alone, of being left out, of being left. It doesn't take us very long. So many of the lies that we carry around in our souls, we pick up right here in this season of life before we even have a chance to even realize or understand who we are and how much God loves us. I have a sister who's beautiful and gifted and talented in more ways than I can count. But when she was in this season of life, she had little octagon glasses and a pretty terrible haircut. She was adorable if you look at her pictures, but she was mercilessly bullied by kids on the playground, picked on relentlessly by both boys and girls. And I remember when she told the story about a day when she sat on a swing just like this, and she watched the janitor scrub the outside wall of the school building because the people who'd been so mean to her, these kids who bullied her, had written terrible things about her on the school wall. So there she sat all by herself and watch the janitor scrub off words that she would always have etched on her heart. If you read any of my books before, you know about some of the battles that I've endured, my battlegrounds that have really marked my life and the way that I view myself and my world. And so I won't go into great detail with those, but I wanna talk about the lies that I picked up when life let me down. As I said, this one I tell probably in a couple, two or three of my other books, so I won't go into detail, but. When I was nine years old, I was pinned down by a group of teenage boys. And I won't go any farther uh, than that, but to tell you, I got up from that place, believing a lie deep in my soul that I'm not safe, that I'm not worth it, and that God doesn't care. When I was about 10 years old, I was walking home from school, and again, I tell this story in a couple of my other books. I was jumped by a group of teenage boys. I was only four feet tall, I was a little girl. And these huge boys jumped me, knocked me to the ground, and laughed wildly as they beat me up. They pulled fistfuls of hair, punched my face, kicked me in the stomach. And I'm just curled up in a ball, screaming for help. And again, the lie was that I'm not safe. Uh, God is not near. Well, another uh, landmark battle that I haven't talked very much about that I want to camp on in this session is just the lie that I was tolerated, that I wasn't really acceptable. 
And I'm not sure exactly how it happened, but in junior high and senior high, I was associated with the popular group because I had enough athletic ability and I could sing and different things. So I was associated with the popular group, but I wasn't a legitimate member of the group. And I really don't blame them for excluding me because I believe such horrible lies about myself because of the other things I've been through. And just a side note, that's what lies do. They kind of stick together and make it easy to believe other lies. But I was excluded from the group. I wasn't a legitimate member of the group. I always felt unacceptable and second rate. So even though I had the athletic ability to do gymnastics and make the cheerleading squad and sing in a special singing group, I was a canyon of insecurity on the inside because of some of the things I walked through. And I remember one specific day in high school when I walked up to the popular group and to the popular girl I'd said, you know, those are such cute pants, where'd you get them? And she turned and looked over her shoulder and said, at the store. And she turned back around and closed the gap and left me standing outside the circle. By this time, I'm a high schooler, but I've never forgotten how that made me feel. And so into my adult years, I carried that lie that you're not acceptable and God merely tolerates you. So I want you to think of some of these lies that I picked up, that, that God is not near, that he doesn't care, and that he barely tolerates me. Well, as I'm walking through ministry, trying to find my way and find my place, this thing kept surfacing for me, that I was excluded. I was on the outside of the circle. And you know, when you believe lies, you got to know this. You sin out of those places. You sabotage your own destiny out of those places because you can't prove your way out of a lie. You can't strive your way out of a lie. Only the truth can set you free. And so one day I was sitting down with some godly saints who were praying for me. And they knew that this was really surfacing for me and my heart was just broken. And I was sobbing and I'm just like, I feel so second class, so barely tolerated, so always on the outside of the circle. And I, I don't know what to do. Well, these women are looking at my adult life going, there's no evidence to point to that, but it felt true. And so it was true to me. And so as they're holding my hands and I was really in such a safe place with these women, one of these old saints said to me, just prayed. And she said, Jesus, is Susie right? Is this true? Is she on the outside of the circle? And we waited. And I just got this picture in my soul of this giant hand reaching out of heaven. You know, when Jesus drew in the sand, it was like this big finger drew a circle around me. And I heard the Lord just speak to my heart. He said, you're the apple of my eye. You're in the center of my heart. You're in the center of my circle. And that's the only place you need to be. You're the object of my affection. I sing over you. I cherish you. You are in the center of my circle. These other circles, they're imaginary. This is the real one, and you're in it. And it healed something in me because truly, you know, David said, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than a big deal anywhere else. That's my paraphrase. But truly, there is no one like God. Nobody's acceptance matters more than his. But if we don't understand how deeply and profoundly he loves us, we will look to other people for our worth, our validation. And the enemy wants it that way. He wants us to chain our worth to the opinions of others so he can jerk us around any time that he wants. Well, years later, I'd been walking in a new freedom and a new sense of my identity, but enough things happened in a row to confirm the old lie that I believed. And I started to wonder again, is this true? Am I sort of on the outside looking in? And my mentor, we have dinner with our mentors once a month, and the husband said, Susie, enemy is trying to make you believe that this old structure exists. He's trying to orchestrate enough circumstances to rebuild a structure so he can put you in it. And he said, but this structure 
does not exist. You are in the center of God's will, and that's where you're most powerful. And the enemy knows this, and that's why he's trying to knock you off center. Believe the truth about yourself. How often does this enemy of ours perpetuate that lie against God's people? You're not enough. You don't fit in. You're on the outside of the circle. Well, guess what? The circle does not exist. There are no haves and have-nots in heaven. He, he's not a respecter of persons. He's a respecter of faith. When you look at Jesus, that he had his three and then he had the 12, I think that's a model for healthy friendship and healthy community. You can't be best friends with everybody but he moves on our faith. But if we live constantly believing we are the leftovers, we're the left out, all of our choices, at least, or many of them, will be to rescue our sense of self-worth when Jesus has already paid a price for our self-worth. It's paid, it's done. Psalm 51.6 says, you desire truth in my inmost being, and in the hidden places you'll make me know wisdom. The reason he wants truth in our inmost being is because that's where most lies go to hide. We have lies embedded in our soul that we're not even aware of, but there's dysfunction in those places. There's self-protection. There's sin in those places. And when he starts to show our need and we get truth in that place where we once had brokenness, we then have wisdom and credibility and authority. And so when God gives you truth in a place where there once was a lie and you make it your own, suddenly you have reacquired that land and you've got wisdom where you once had brokenness. That's what God has. That's what he wants for all of us. The idea that there are no circles except for the circle that being in the inside of God's will and his heart is going to be good news for some of you because maybe you've lived feeling like you're on the outside. For some, women give their identity away by putting it on a silver platter saying, here, you decide my worth because I just don't know. And we're tossed to and fro by everybody else's opinions. But for others, you've been hurt enough by women <laughs> that you're thinking, I don't really care what women think of me. Nobody will ever hurt me again. And you've built such a tall wall that no life gets in or out. But the kingdom woman, God wants us to be tender, to be tough, to be able to take risks with other women where they could probably hurt our feelings, but they don't get to decide our worth ever again. God wants us to have a tender heart, a little bit of tougher skin, and a fierce faith. I'm getting ready to wrap up here. But in 1 Chronicles 11, we read about a time when David was crowned king. And a little quick backstory: in Back when Joshua led the Israelites across the Jordan River to lay hold of the promised land, there was one city he didn't lay hold of, the city of Jebus. And I couldn't find why he didn't do that, but it was a city that remained self-occupied when it was supposed to be part of the inheritance. So when King David was crowned king, he went and he took the city. First Chronicles 11, 4 and 5 says, And David and all of Israel went to Jerusalem, that is Jebus, where the Jebusites were. Another translation is the city of Jebus, where the Jebusites were. And they, they were the inhabitants of the land. And they said to David, You will not come in here. I love the next word, nevertheless. Nevertheless, David took the city. Love that. And not only did he take the city, that's our Jerusalem. That became the city of David. That became his operation and command center. That he occupied that place and made it the capital city. What if it was said of you that the enemy said, you're not, coming, you're not getting this stuff back. Sorry, I stole it. You can't have it back. And the next line in your story was, nevertheless, she took it anyway. Not only did she take the land back, but she made it her place of operation, her capital city. It was a place of power. It was an evidence of God's intervention in her life. 
My NIV study note says, Jerusalem was the city where God revealed his word to his people. That is the valley of vision. The mountains surrounding Jerusalem symbolize the Lord surrounding his people in eternal steadfastness. In essence, therefore, listen, Jerusalem was a symbol of all that God wanted for his people. Whenever God's people were in Jerusalem, listen, they were to remember God's ruling power, his holiness, his faithfulness to his people, and his eternal commitment to be their God. What if your former stronghold became a valley of vision? The lie is that you are stuck, that you're a have-not, that you're outside of the circle, that you have something to prove. The truth is you have nothing to prove and all of eternity to live for. God is searching the world over, and he's looking for faith. And churches are filled with people, wheats and tares, those who are pretending, playing a good game, but they're not purchasing it with their heart, and those who are living it out. And God sees, God sees you on your knees. He sees you pressing in and pressing on. And though the lines seem very blurred in this day, immorality is rampant, political angst is everywhere, we're going to win this battle on our knees. I just believe that we are. We need a, per we need a revival in the, in the church, but it happens with personal revival, personal surrender, personal submission. God, what do you have for me? And when you humble yourself and you trust him, he moves. The lines are blurred on what's producing fruit and what isn't because we don't see the whole story. But I want you to know there's perfect clarity in heaven. Heaven knows who's who in the zoo. I'm just saying. May his kingdom come and his will be done in and through us. May we live as ones who are spoken for. May we say no unless God gives us a capital yes. And when we catch ourselves on the rumble strips of striving and straining, may we stop it and know once again that he is God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray even now, even now, this very moment, that you would settle in, hover over, rise up within these women, speak to them about their schedules, about even what, what fuels their decisions, set eternity in their hearts in a greater measure. God, if there's anything on their schedule that you never asked them to do, give them wisdom on what to do next, if there's a gracious way to bow out, if what they need to do. But I pray in the name of Jesus, align them so that they can run the race to win. May there be such focused passion that they start to see forward movement and traction. I pray now, Lord, in the name of Jesus as they pray, Mountains would move, kingdom would come, people would be changed. I pray you would do impossible things in and through these women. When they come back next year, they're telling stories to their friends of what has happened in a year. Lord, our trials, our storms, none of these things can keep us from a fruitful life. Nothing can keep us. No demon in hell, no trial on earth. Your promises are true. And when we abide in you, we bear much fruit that lasts long and lasts beyond us. May it be so in us. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.